If ever there was an all messed up night, we've got it going. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my freaking robot gods. Let me tell you, kitties. It's amazing that we're all here, and I don't even know who's here. I am the Dome. Welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. It is uh, TalkCast 121, and with us tonight are the usual suspects to some degree or another. (laughs) <laughs> from the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire, we have Illustrator X. Bruce Wayne off Vita Zane, Dirty Harry, make my day. Hello. <laughs> and, uh, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> let me see. Uh, from, from, from the Time Vortex, uh, somewhere in Massachusetts, we have... Kriana, are you there? Yes. Okay. And so is Zombrarian, theoretically. And Zombrarian. I'm Zombrarian. here. Oh, you're there. Right. I'm here. I we exist. Act- we actually have a cast. Uh, and on a bus in, in Teaneck, New Jersey, went winding his way up to the Van Wick Expressway. <laughs> Awake by Java. And to, to follow up on Illustrator X, Donka Shane, darling, Donka Shane, thank you for all the joy. I'm surrounded by trains! <laughs> Literally on a bus uh, tonight, awake by John. to me, man. <laughs> no, 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 do not start that song. Sorry, that's not <laughs> happening. That is so not happening. In any case, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Joining us tonight, God knows why she's even trying, Megan Gregory is joining us from the uh, Comic Archive Project. Megan, how are you, hon? I'm doing very well, Dom. Thank you for asking. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> thank you for putting up with what we've been going through tonight. Anytime. It's an emotional roller coaster every week here at Sci-Fi Saturday Night. And today has just been one of the best, hasn't it? It has just been more fun than humans should be allowed to have. So to start us off, uh, because we're missing the dead redhead tonight, Illustrator X is going to take us through this week's poll. Who would you like to see at Boston Comic Con this year? X? Well, I do want to say that uh, Dead Redhead wanted me to point out that it was a hard one because... There's been a lot of really great guests at the Boston Comic Con. 
And, uh, however, we did get a good guest list. And uh, number three on our list, people want to see the entire cast of, of Firefly. Yeah. Not, not just Mal. No. The entire cast. The entire freaking cast, absolutely. Let me tell so, you. Uh, wait a minute. Are you telling me that there are brown coats active on the internet? Shut I'm up! No. What a shock! <laughs> <laughs> and continuing the Joss Whedon theme here, number two, we have a tie actually. Number two, Felicia Day. Absolutely. Ooh. We would like to see her in Boston. I would definitely but, like to see her in but, Boston. Just as I'd like to see her in any All event. right. <laughs> How did I know we were going pervy on that right off the I'd bat? I'd like to see her but, in nothing. But you know what? <laughs> if you had to say to yourself, what could equal Felicia Day's charisma? It would be the Priceline negotiator himself, the Shat, William Shatner, tying for the number two spot. Well, somebody chat, choice. chat is what I did when I saw that on the list. <laughs> <laughs> but the coolest but part was who came I, in at number one. Number Seriously. one, I think it was like two or three times more votes than anyone else on the list combined. This was a, a sweep. Ladies and gentlemen, you will want to see... Oh my. Oh George Takai. You mean George Takai, king of Twitter? Heck yeah. Squeeze. So apparently, New England comic fans want to meet George Takai really badly. So So we will present our findings to the Boston Comic Con, and we will see what we can do. George Takai Takai wins the internet like cats win the internet. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Red Red. Dead Redhead did want me, no matter how he placed in the in the poll, she did want me to give a shout out because she thought the best uh, one that was suggested was Zombie Jack Kirby. <laughs> um. <laughs> so kudos to you, my friends. So that's how the uh, the Boston Comic Con wannabe list is looking at right now. Hmm. But going from and that, it's been an interesting week. It has been a very interesting week. I think we do need to lead, though. We uh, we got uh, we got a call for help from a very dear friend. You want to take this one, Dome, or um, about a year oh. and a half ago, when we were talking with Spider Robinson and, and talking to Gene, and Gene was battling cancer bravely and. With, with grace and dignity, finally succumbing to it. And we thought that the healing process was going to begin. We've recently found out that Terry Luana da Silva, who's the daughter of Spider and Jean, uh, has stage four meta- metast- metastatic. Metastatic, thank you, breast cancer. Oh. And those of you who remember talk uh, when we spoke to spider about six months ago spider was talking about terry's daughter his granddaughter and that was the daughter who sat with him at the funeral and was channeling gene for him and was a source of 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 strength and 
now Terry is battling as well. I'm going to post a couple of links uh, on the website. One is to Terry's blog, which is uh, Woman Warrior. It's uh, a daily post that she's been putting out, and it is a source of, of strength and hope for anybody in that situation. And I just want Terry and, and Spider and everyone out there to know that our thoughts and prayers are with them. And, Beyond uh, that, I don't know. I, I just want to point out also that, you know, we took, you know, we spearheaded a, a charitable event a few years ago to uh, raise money for Gene by, uh, you know, getting some art jams going from different artists and the response was overwhelming and uh, we are certainly looking at that option again and we are going to keep our listeners uh, abreast of the situation here <laughs> and uh, see what other options or what other charitable events we can organize here. So if and you have an idea cap on our website and send it to us in an email or tell us on Twitter or Facebook or any other way you can get in touch with us. Absolutely. Tweet us. Tweet us all. <laughs> all righty. Which brings us what? to some of the most interesting comic news that's happened in, in an awfully long time. And, and Which X, one? We have a couple. I, yeah, well, I'm going to actually let X run this. Go for it. <laughs> well, this week, um, Marvel Comics really just, you know... <laughs> Uh, by now, I'm sure you've all heard the news that uh, Gar Gary Friedrich, the creator of uh, Ghost Rider, the uh, the 70s version, the flaming skullhead guy, as played by Nicolas Cage, awesome, what lost his <laughs> lawsuit to Marvel, and not only did he lose his lawsuit, he is not allowed to say that he's the creator of Ghost Rider. He is not allowed to draw a little doodle of Ghost Rider on anything and sell it. He even has to pay Marvel Comics $17,000 as almost an apology for the whole lawsuit here. I think that no, we, what I, we, I, call I, that, we call that rape. You know, I no, think that's you know the other thing, too, is that Joe Casada made a really nasty kind of joke on Twitter today about it, and I thought it was really mean. He said, found myself doodling Spider-Man during a meeting. Guess I'm going to have to sue myself now. And I was like, I thought it was, I didn't know if it was like a hit at Gary Friedrich or what it was, but it, was, it wasn't uh, nice. No, that is not. That is, that, I mean, this, this is absolutely rape. You're right, Java. It's, it's, it's very sad what's, what's happening in the industry right now. And you what know what's really, really, really bad about it is that now you've got all these people who go to cons and they're like, there are people who are literally afraid of drawing characters at cons that are owned by companies. I well, mean, that's just it. I mean, uh, uh, we've had Steve Bissett on before, the, the DC artist for Swamp Thing, and he's actually calling out on his Facebook page to have all comic book artists not draw Marvel characters at conventions from now on. Can you and he, as he put on his Facebook page? Can you imagine the San Diego Comic Con and you can't get a drawing of Spider Man? I, I or think Iron that's Man? only going to hurt the artists. Honestly, it's not hurting Marvel any. 
It's not like it's going to decrease the fame of their characters. They're already out there. They're already people's favorites. All you're hurting, all you're hurting is the artist who's trying to make a buck here. And frankly, they should be scared to draw these characters at cons. It's technically, under the current law, illegal, and just the companies tend to turn a blind eye. And this is the problem with our current copyright laws, because they can decide at any point that they don't want to turn a blind eye anymore, and then you're fucked. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I agree with Kriana that it's not hurting Marvel at all. It's just gonna it's just gonna hurt the fans, you know? Exactly. Well, it, and it's going to hurt the artists. It's going to hurt each individual artist who now, you know, when Marvel went through that in the 50s and 60s and 70s of basically, you know, hiring artists at will and whatever they made was no longer owned by them. And now, That's standard you know, for companies, though. That is an absolutely standard employee contract, and it's only because it's a creative work that this is becoming a problem. You have to understand that, like, you know, Dome, you work for a company that sells computers. If you design something that sells computers, your company would own that. If you design something as, as a hired person, as an employee, your company owns it. Period. Unless you have a contract stating otherwise. But now, what's happened is that the, the inability of these people to make a living outside of that uh, monolithic structure. And, and not just the individual creators, but I mean, you know, we had uh, last year and the year before this wonderful artist who shall, oh, well, and I even hesitate to call him an artist, uh, this, this tracer who would go from con to con saying, you know, I did oh, this. Oh, yeah. And I did this, and I was part of this, and basically all he was doing was retracing and, and essentially Xeroxing other people's work. And I mean, a lot of the artists that we know who, who do Marvel and DC people, as well as their own stuff, are not, you know, taking yes. the original artwork and redoing it. They are putting their own spin on it. But it's still illegal. Well, it is illegal. It doesn't change the legal fact. Whether you think it's right or wrong, moral or immoral, it's still illegal, technically. Well, I, yes. Which is why that law has to change. Yeah, I mean, it's a bigger issue, too. I mean, because I think that you could fairly say that Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, and Captain America are part of the American zeitgeist at this point, you know? I mean, so let me let me take out this out of the realm of comic books for a minute and use a different example. And you're going to groan at me, but it's going to be Glee, okay? The okay. things that they show on Glee are patently illegal. I'm going to take the last episode where they had a performance in a restaurant. Unless they shelled out hundreds, thousands probably, of dollars for the rights to every single commercial song that they sang... What they did was illegal. In the same but episode, they do, they do, yeah, they do so. buy those songs. No, they, they do don't. They don't guys, portray that part do that. on the show. The they just show does not shell out that money. They just show if kids their doing their the world, thing. They license those songs. They could sing them. Yeah. So what they're not? Sh they're showing kids singing songs, 
having fun. What they're not showing is the thousands of dollars in fees. I know the show Glee has to obviously pay those things, but they don't show that facet of it on the show. Same episode, they showed Brittany making a playlist for Santana. She said, I want, it, I want it to burn you a CD. That's technically illegal. Is it something uh, that people wait. do every day? Uh, uh, yeah, it is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The episode had Britney Spears making a, a, a playlist for Carlos Santana? No. Yes. Britney yes. Spears, yes. <laughs> Carlos Santana, no. Um, she's hotter than he is. But um, they, they show them every day, and they're remixing, and they're sharing, and they're basically creative process well, is extremely illegal unless you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars would, sometimes in licenses. Would you think it was illegal then if like there was like some sort of character that started off as a spoof and, and had a life of its own like say a, a Doctor Who character that done as a, a pony or something that now is a, a beloved character? Well, Doctor Who. the thing with parody is that it is covered under fair use. The problem with fair use is that it's not a right, it's a defense. So they could still sue you and cost you thousands of dollars in lawyer fees to, and then your defense would mm. be fair use. You can't say, I'm, you know, I'm not, you're not, you can't sue me, this is fair use. It has to be tested in court. I love the fact that this is all coming back to stuff that was talked about 20 years ago in the indie comic scene with uh, Dave Sims' Cerebus, where he was I'm saying... King of Cerebus. Well, well, just the fact that he was every issue. He was like, guys, unless you're doing your own comics, your own characters, you're doing your own creations, you are at risk because a corporation doesn't care and will steamroller over you if they feel like it. What Absolutely. was it? Spawn number ten, the one that had Cerebus in it and had Superman chained to the, chained in the basement. Uh no, there was a character that was all in shadow. <laughs> oh, it was, it was supposed to be bat. I couldn't remember if it was Superman or Batman. It was just. It, it certainly could have been Superman, but at the end of that comic, I think you'll remember it said, "Spawn is copyright Todd McFarlane forever. Dave Sim has copyright of Cerebus forever," and then. Todd McFarlane went and sued uh, Neil Gaiman for copyright infringement, and uh, Neil Gaiman ended up winning. So this is just a nasty situation that we've created that people feel really entitled over concepts that maybe they shouldn't be entitled to. I frankly well, disagree with Steve Bissett on some points where he, I feel like he thinks that no. creators should have too many rights. I feel like remixing and reimagining is a huge part of our culture and that just because the original creator doesn't like it should not be a sort of litmus test so that it can exist or not. Brianna? Yes. You'll you'll be hearing from my lawyer. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just the comic industry though. It's not just the music industry. It's the movies, it's television mm. and books or every it's creative medium. Into- Every creative medium is going through the same thing. Yeah. How awesome is it to have someone take down your video of your baby dancing because the song that they're dancing to is copyrighted? Mm-hmm. That's fucked up. Agreed. But it happens. Wow. Every single day, it happens. I agree. So I hear Smallville's back. No! Yeah, as a comic book, Q-Sad Trombones is the title of this. <laughs> no, wait a minute. Before we go there... I want to go to a, a, a post that was done on a website that I really like called Gamma Squad. 
It's called the Superhero Movie Guilt Calculator, or How Badly Did the Comic Industry Screw the Creators Behind 2012 Superhero Blockbusters? And, <laughs> <laughs> and the first one that they, they talk about is Ghost Rider. And on a scale of one to, uh, one to four screws, Gary Friedrich gets four screws, Roy Thomas gets one screw, and Mike Plug gets one screw. All right. Well, for, I, all right. I can't. I can't feel too bad about Roy Thomas simply because he wrote the script for Conan the Destroyer. That's right. So he deserves it. <laughs> Look, I there mean, you, you don't even know the situations for half of these. Some of it could have just been honest, bad business deals, and who can you really blame for that? But yourself, if you legitimately went into it, said, "I'm going to sell this," and then you know. 20 years down the line, now it's big, and now I feel bad about that, I'm going to sue. That's ridiculous. I, I think it's the hypocrisy of a company that makes its living selling heroism and doing the right thing as its core concept, and yet doesn't live up to the standards it espouses. Well, the law says that they are doing the right thing, though. Yeah. I don't care about the law. So, so the law Okay, so you don't right? care about... No, I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying if you're not looking at the law, what moral code are you using? Exactly. People oh, use their go. own moral code. I mean, there's legal, there's ethical. Those are two different things. I think, I think the point is, is that you know, you know what Illustrator said was correct. I mean, if Marvel's going to run around talking about heroism and then they're going to turn around and treat one of their own people like that, that's wrong. But they're not you know? running around talking about heroism. They're running around selling heroism. It's not like they're ghouls. It's not like they're like we won't be evil. They never said that. <laughs> no, I, I, they they won't. They, they're just as much the villain as they are the hero. They do they they completely espouse the the standards of the villains in these in these these comic books. But they're just selling. They don't give a shit about what's right and what's wrong. They care about what makes them money, and that's understandable. I mean, they're a company. That's what money. they do. And if you fault them for doing that, just you can't because that's what they're for. Okay, here's, uh, here's what it comes down to. Comic book artists have their own... They have their, their choice. They can do what they want to do. If they want to create a character, if they want to get the money from the major comic book labels and, you know, make money that way, they can. But they have to realize that their characters are not theirs. And if they want to go indie and they want to make their own characters and own them entirely, they can do that. But they also have to be able to do it. What I, what I think really needs to happen is the comic book organizations need to step up and educate artists about what they need to do in order to own their own stuff. And that's where people fall short. People don't understand that to own their own characters, they can't sign with Marvel or DC because they're not going to own their stuff. But here, here's, here's an important thing. Somebody like a Jack Kirby, okay? Now, Jack Kirby created or co-created Captain America, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Hulk, Thor, New Gods, Mr. Miracle, oh, and uh, Devil Dinosaur. Sorry about that one. But he didn't own the rights to any of his most famous creations, okay? He was one of the best create, paid creators of comics, but... He had no problem and, you know, moving from one company to another for whatever, whoever was going to pay him the most. Now, near the end of his career, Kirby had a legal battle with Marvel, but it wasn't over money. It was to have 11,000 pages that he drew for the company returned 
he it, he died before it was settled. After his death, the estate sued Marvel in attempt to get control again, and they're still battling over it. Why do they think now, they the, have the right to that, though? I don't understand. If, if the world was really a truly just place, Kirby would have been a billionaire. Okay, but why? But he made his business decision. That was his decision made, to make. But my point is... He made a damn good living on his own terms. You can't say, though, that he would be a billionaire because it's possible if he didn't sign with any of these companies that he would have made no money, his characters never would have been seen, it all depends on the marketing, and that's what the companies did for him. Did he make a lot of other people rich? Yes. But if he was happy with what he was being paid, that was his business decision. But he made a damn good living. He so, was never happy with it. Yeah, he was never happy about what he was being paid, and I think... Well, then why would you take the job? Just say no. Oh, that's right, because getting into a creative industry is really easy, and sometimes you don't have to sacrifice your scruples to try and further I'm yourself. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying, like, it's not like he went into it with his eyes closed and had no idea what he was doing. I think that's really, I think you're being really unfair to Jack Kirby, and I think especially the age of the industry in which Jack Kirby, when he was writing it in the 60s and the 70s, I think that it was still, there was a lot of stuff that was new, and I think that Kirby deserved a lot more than he ever got from Marvel. I feel like he really got the short end of the stick, and I think one of the most important things to note is that you're talking about the difference between the law and I think we're trying to talk about what's actually right. And you keep saying, well, it's the law, it's the law. Does that mean just because it's the law that we shouldn't try and change it? I, I'm no. not saying that we shouldn't try and change it. I'm just saying that under the laws right now, they're wasting their money on the lawsuit because Marvel, unfortunately, is in the right. I mean, I think well, there's so much confusion as to what the laws well, are and with people's wishful thinking about what they want them to be that it gets really confused and I think most people think that the artists drawing at cons are well, doing something perfectly legal right but I think what it is is it comes down to the fact that these are Kirby and all these people worked for corporations that again they've been drilling into us from day one with their product their product sells the fact that you should do the right thing and we have grown up now there have been a, it's been a whole generation that grew up with fair contracts for the providers. Grant Morrison made over a million dollars on one Batman graphic novel. He didn't create a single character in it. But yeah, they don't extend this back to the creators who built the whole foundation to begin with. And when we read these comics and it says, but you've been saying all the whole time, do the right thing, and now you're doing the right thing for the new guys, why aren't you doing it for the, the guys who made you the, the giant you are in the first place? Because they I didn't have to. to. You know, right. it's like it's it like you catch your it's like you catch your parents cheating on each other and it's like, but you said you should always do the right thing and they're like, Yeah, do what I say, not what I do. I mean, I, I feel like you have a really strong emotional response to this and I can understand that. But Absolutely. I mean, it's really no different from the way record labels are screwing artists left and right, and, you know... Mm. And we don't agree with that either. We, we don't, but it still happens, and people are trying to change it, but it hasn't really changed. So, but the comic industry has changed. You know, I mean, even if anytime you pick up a Deadpool comic, it says Deadpool created by Rob Liefeld. I feel like if Jack Kirby is getting less than Rob Liefeld, there's something really off in the universe. Oh, God, yeah. 
there's always going to be a level of inequity here, but the reality is, is that law is on the side of the business right now, not the content creator. And until there's more equity within the law, and there's more equity in terms of the consumer, that the artist is going to get screwed, the consumers are going to get screwed, and big well, money is going to be are made where screwed. it's been made for a long time. Consumers are getting screwed every which way at the moment, and none of the laws are going to change until the lobby for consumers and content... Cre- I mean, honest. to be honest, this sort of... Um, comic thing what you're what you're thinking here is sort of you have the older guys who are getting screwed the newer guys who are not getting as screwed so there has been a shift in the industry where the newer guys are not getting screwed you have some independent ones getting fairly popular and sort of not needing the major labels like they did so for those people the law is still really in favor of them especially if you can get to be a really successful independent comic what it's still not in favor of is if now some other artist wants to go and make like a fan art of that comic or they they want to sort of scan their comics to take with them on their personal ipad or something of that nature like the law is not on the consumer side you, you may think the law is not on the creator's side, but as long as the creator doesn't sign their rights away, it really, really is. Whether they well, know what they're doing or not, the law is really anti-consumer. And as the law gets more pro-consumer, it will be more pro-sort of remixing and allowing for more creative mm. outlets. But it's, it's a fine line, and it's not one that's been decided, but it's not that the law is anti-creator at all. It's that the companies are anti-creator. The law is actually firmly on the side of the creator. And until the lobbying dollars in Congress sway in favor of the consumer, don't hold your breath for that one. It's not going to change. Well, all I can say is that, you know, folks, when you think Sci-Fi Saturday Night, think getting screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Or drunk, whichever. (laughs) <laughs> Pick one. And and you know, you know, thinking of how people in the golden age of comics got screwed over, uh, I think of how a lot of that has been lost forever. And I think that brings us to our topic of the week, our our interview of the night. Do you realize all we've done is talk about so much for <laughs> awesome news of the week? Yeah, I had some good I've ones, been... man. You know what? Walking Dead. People talked a lot and moped. Anyways, getting on to this. <laughs> oh bullshit! Walking Dead was a really good episode. Bite me. There was more. There was more action in one episode of The Walking Dead than there was in the whole first half of the season, and it was wow. good. And what does that say about the season? It says what it says about by turn- AMC because AMC you know, cut their budget in half, doubled the number of episodes. And then said, oh, and by the way, it's got to be just as good as the last season. And fired their showrunner. Did you say that already? And fired their showrunner. So no, what they basically had to do time. was take their concept for the season, stretch it out over twice the amount of time. And pretend that you can and hear zombies, that zombies, and that's totally scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a crazy idea. How about people um, read the comic instead, because it's better. You know what? I like the TV show, and it's it's okay that the two are diverging, and it's a, I, I think it's a good thing that it is. But you're right; the source material itself 
is is a much more satisfying experience. But that's probably because we like it. <laughs> I like the comic. I started reading it, and um, I I didn't get too far. I think I got past where we are. But um, no, I really I really enjoyed well, it. They've they've really really gone off on a tangent with the TV series, which I like because I mean that means that the, you can watch the show and not know what's going to happen. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. nice because I know I, I read the first three to five issues and I just knew everything that was going to happen. I was like, "Barn, it's filled with zombies." I know. <laughs> there was no suspense there. None whatsoever. So, here we are, halfway through the show, and we've beaten the comic industry to death, <laughs> taken them to task. <laughs> so, let's talk about the comic archive project. Awesome. <laughs> Megan, <laughs> what, in, in short, succinct, helpful phrases, what's the comic archive project all about? Thank you. Um, the Comic Archive Project is an idea that I came up with um, a, a, probably about a year and a half ago now. I don't know, probably just about a year ago, when I realized that there is no central uh, comic book repository in the United States, meaning that there is nobody that archives comic books. And you might come back at me and you could say, well, University of Michigan, University of Ohio. Those two institutions collectively... Uh, work on comic strips, and then they'll go into some Victorian age and Golden Age comics. But, you know, there's stuff that I feel like you need to get it as it comes out. You, you know what I mean? So instead of saying, well, the best we've got is a grade fair copy, uh, you know, let's just say in 50 years, someone would say, well, the best I can do is a grade fair copy of Grant Morrison's Invisibles number one holy crap, we need to keep Grant Morrison's work alive. So my, my um, goal is to not differentiate between what critics say is good and bad, just to take everything and keep it for future study by scholars um, and fans alike. Now, you have been um, giving it a special focus on the golden age of comics, like thirties to the fifties because there's a lot of that that's that's gone missing at this point, right? Yeah, there is so much that's already gone that we'll never get back. And the other thing too that we we want to focus on um is original artwork, um scripts, things like that. That because I mean once those things are gone, they're gone forever. You can't reproduce that kind of stuff. And um I think it's uh you know, anything we can grab from the golden age is awesome, but I think that, you know, uh People need to look at the Bronze Age and the Silver Age and even the Modern Age. I mean, can well, wouldn't it what be? Are, wait, for, for the uninitiated, for the uninitiated, what are these ages you are talking about? Sure. Very quickly, um, comic books have been broken up into different ages uh, based on certain events. Uh, so anything, you know, prior to uh, I believe it's uh, 1936 is considered the Victorian Age. Um, and then the pre-platinum age goes from 36 to 39 with the, uh, 38 rather, with the advent of Superman and Action Comics number one. That's the golden age of comics. Um, so, um, and then we went from the golden age went until the end of the war in 45. And then it was into the atomic age in, and that was up till, I believe, 53. Was that showcase number four? Uh, that would be, uh, 1956. 
56, my apologies. And that was the end <laughs> of um, the new Flash uh, with Julie Schwartz at the helm at DC Comics. So it's just a it's just a way of breaking up comics into you know how literature is broken up into the you know different uh, ages and history is broken up into different ages. We've just right. chosen that with comics to to make it. You know, if 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 I were to say Silver Age Flash to another fan, they would know exactly what I was talking about. Instead of going, oh, you know, remember Barry Allen in the fifties when he fought uh, Doctor Al, uh, you know, when he used to fight uh, this guy and this guy and this guy, and, and everyone knows, you know, and you don't have to say the Gardner Fox Flash. You just know because I said Silver Age Flash. Right. Okay. So, you the thought is that there needs to be some kind of preservation. A, are we talking a physical preservation site? Yes, um, we do. We're looking for um, a site to be located ideally in Concord, New Hampshire, but um, we would, you know, be willing to accept it be uh, it somewhere else. We'd even be willing to put it in White River Junction if we were invited there. Um, however, <laughs> uh, hint, hint. hint. Um, what, but what we want to do is we just want to make sure that this stuff is safe, this stuff is preserved, and it's preserved appropriately. So I'm not talking about just throwing it in a bag and a board and putting it in a box somewhere. But I'm talking about, you know, what we want to have ideally is we want to have trained archivists and we want to have trained librarians because they know their stuff, they know what they're doing. You know, we need to keep this stuff because it's not, you know... It's not just part of something. It's not just something that I love and that you guys love. It's part of American culture, and it's part of, um, you know, it, it, I think it. I think what's going on in comics often it, uh, reflects what's going on in American culture. Now I have a question for you. Um, you know, I think this project is an absolutely wonderful idea, but any sort of physical site is really vulnerable to, you know, a disaster. Have you? Has there been any thought or research into a digital preservation as well? Yeah, digital preservation is a little trickier uh, because of the legality of it. Um, that's something that we've been looking into with our attorney, um, who's awesome. So he's been looking into that. For us. <laughs> um, but wait, is that is that how you chose your attorney? Is it is like, well, this one's okay. oh, wait, this one's awesome. <laughs> there we go. Funny, funny story. My attorney is uh, he subs at the same comic book store that I work at when he was going to law school. So that's how I knew him and. When uh, he was standing in line to meet Jim Lee, and I was Jim Lee's assistant, I think, what was it, two, three years ago at Boston Comic Con, he didn't realize it because he was so deep in conversation with me that Jim Lee was like, ahem, and he looks and he goes, oh, sorry, and he turns like bright red and he points at me and goes, that's my comic girl, sorry. You know, he made Jim Lee wait, not kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good legal qualifications, I'll give you that. <laughs> Maybe qualify as awesome. Yeah, uh, yes, he's passed the bar in the state of New Hampshire. He's also been deemed awesome. He has a Dude. certificate from the Franklin Pierce School of Law as awesome. Oh, my. <laughs> now, uh, let me ask you something. Now, there has been a lot of preservation of comics, though. I mean, the DC has it put it, been putting out its um, Golden Age collections of action comics, all the Supermans, Batmans, and so forth. Even you know characters like the Spectre, DC. I mean, I mean uh, Marvel has certainly been putting out even its Golden Age collections of Marvel and hardcover collections. So, where is where is the um, 
what's disappearing? What do we need to preserve here? Well, I think, and, um, you know, I don't know how to put this delicately, but I don't trust Marvel and DC to always do that. Um, for example, the, today, <laughs> today I was reading the um, the Denny O'Neill 70s Wonder Woman uh, uh, relaunch, remember, when she lost her powers and everything? And even reading that, there was some stuff in there that's a little, a little like, racist. And, you know, what what's to say that DC is not going to turn around next week and say, you know, we really can't reprint that. That's way too racist. I mean, I've seen some of the Captain Marvel comics, uh, Shazam, from the yeah. 40s, and they yeah. are miserable. Like, but not, they are, they reflect what was going on in society at the time. But who's to say that DC is not going to turn around and say, we're not going to reprint that. That's too much. I mean, how often do you see Bugs Bunny fighting you know, how often do you see the Bugs Bunny war cartoons? You never see them. Oh, they never right. show them disappear. Well, the episode uh, Bugs Bunny Japs the Japs, where he's, he's screaming right. at them, hey, slanty eyes. Yeah, and not, yeah. I'm not saying that this is something that, this is an attitude that needs to prevail in today's culture, because clearly it's, it's not appropriate for today's culture, but you can't just erase something because you've realized that it wasn't right to do that. And, I mean, and who's to say that they don't go back and turn all their guns into walkie-talkies? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, besides that, who's to, you know, I mean, in some of those issues, it's it's actually very funny. Um, a person that I know pretty well, also from my comic book shop, he, DC and Marvel have lost so much of their own information that DC will call him and say, hey, we've got this issue of whatever that we're looking to reprint. We can't, we have no idea who the artist of record, we don't know who the artist was, we don't have it on record. Do you know who did this issue? And he can look at the issue and say, oh, it was so-and-so, give them credit. You know, so DC and Mar they can't even keep their own stuff straight. You know, they're too busy, what, you know, suing penniless art, uh, artists that they can't... <laughs> and not only that, but I'm archiving... Archiving those types of things wasn't an issue back then because, just like today, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like an important thing to keep around an episode of Grimm because or Doctor Who. It could possibly yeah. be conceived that we would never have that again. But then you look, you know, thirty, forty years in the future, and yeah, I can't get some of those episodes of Who from the first and third Doctors because they just don't exist. And, and, now, not, not you know, that you've been crying about that. No. Uh, <laughs> I got it. But, but, I mean, as far as, as far as a person who desperately wants to be the person who has everything, you know, like I have... I, I'm the person who went back when he started to read Superman and had to have Action Cox number one look at it, to read it, to start from that point. I couldn't read The Flash unless I started at the beginning. Because, so, so basically, you want to be Courtney Love. You want to be the girl with the most cake. That kind of attitude <laughs> just wasn't around in the '30s. That kind of attitude just wasn't around with those those comics. You know, were being produced because they weren't being produced for people who cared about them. Like they weren't being produced for people who saw their validity as a part of the American zeitgeist. They didn't see that. Right. Well, it was, a now, it was disposable media. Absolutely was. I mean, it was throwaway you know, there's media. A, there's actually a comic store called My Mom Threw Mine Out. That's the name of the store. <laughs> Best business model ever. 
Please tell me they also stock vintage Playboy. Sweet. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> oh my. Okay. So, yeah, I know what you're talking about because they, they even alter stuff. I was just thinking when uh, Marvel put out its uh, essential Tomb of Dracula's a year or two ago, there was a big furor because um, they went back and they changed some of the artwork because some of that was in magazine form and it actually had like topless drawings and they went back and shaded them in. It's little things like that that we're concerned about, and we're also concerned um, about independent comic books as well. I mean, how many comic companies have we seen come and go um, in our time? You know, you don't want to lose that stuff. Think about, um, who are the guys that published Grendel before Dark Horse got a hold of it? Was it Eclipse Comics? Comico. Comico. They're out of business. You know what I mean? They're gone. They have, you know... I mean, I'm sure someone somewhere's got that stuff, but we want to have it free and open to the public. Yeah, you know, well, just for I, the record, the dead redhead has it, and <laughs> you know, if anyone would have it, it would be the dead redhead. But um, what what we're concerned about is we want to have this stuff available to scholars um, in case there's you know if there's something that they want to look back on, so they don't have to go and beg Marvel's permission or DC's permission or go back and say gosh, uh, you know, I really loved this independent comic company, and now it's gone. I mean, like, for example, I mean, who knows where, I don't know, IDW is going to be in, in 50 years. Are people going to be able to look at original issues of Lock and Key? Is it going to well, be gone? Better. Better there's be also, able to. Um, just ask me, because I will have the, them all. Yeah. <laughs> there's a whole lot of stuff from the 60s and 70s, kitchen sink press, rip-off press, there was a lot of stuff in the 60s and 70s that is now pretty much gone forever. Exactly. And that's, and that's something that we're looking to avoid in the future. Um, what we'd really like to have. The other thing that we're interested in, and this is kind of a pet project of mine, so you'll have to forgive me. I'm interested in fanzines that people used to print prior you know, to, to the internet being really big because then you could see what people thought. Um, uh, I don't know if you... There was a, I don't even remember what it was. Brian Michael Bendis did something a couple of years ago, and it was like, what if the internet was around in the 60s, and it was like people going on message oh, boards yeah. ripping on Jack Kirby and stuff, and who the hell yes. is this new flash? He sucks, and, you know, but, like, I want to keep, because I, I think that fanzines are an important part of, like, the 70s and 80s, especially, I mean, they're amazing for music, and from what I understand, they've got a lot of really amazing stuff for comics as well. Absolutely. Now, let me ask you: What do you see as being the thing that's in danger, the most danger of disappearing in comics? Would it be like personal, uh, like like original scripts, original artwork, comics themselves? Um, I think independent comics are in the most danger because they have low print runs. Um, they're not going to be, you know, people who love independent comics. They love them because they love them. You don't buy an issue of an independent comic number one because you think it's going to be worth a million dollars someday and you, you, know, you stick it in a bag and a board and you never look at it. Independent comics are really important and I think that independent comics especially um, have, have really carved out a path of intellectualism in comics that most people don't even know about. So I think that you have to protect those indie books because if their publishers go away, 
you know, where's their stuff going to end up? If they even have publishers. Right. Well, Some again, of them are self-published. A lot of it's self-published. And again, this is one of the beautiful things about going to a Comic-Con is that this is a, the only time you will see a lot of these creators. They will be selling their individually self-published work and you can not only get something you can't necessarily get at a comic store because they might not have ordered it but you can actually meet the creator and have them sign it right there and even buy the original artwork i have a confession to make oh my god you're a man no no my confession is i could give a flying fuck about all of those comic people who bring their trunk loads of comics from their mom's attic and they're all DC and Marvel and that's pretty much what they have and that's it. I don't even give them a second look, even if they have toys. The indie comics are the coolest people that you could ever talk to. And they're not out there just to make a buck like these other guys are. They're like, alright, we've bought these lots of comics from eBay or, you know, people dropped them off at our store and we gave them 500 bucks for the whole stack and now we gotta sell them it's more personal and you get to talk to them and really feel where they're coming from and it's a legitimate connection and it's so much more fun exactly it totally is it totally is and and you feel you know it's something that that gets missed a lot these days And, and one of the nice things about you know when you when you see indie guys at small cons and even at Boston Comic Con, and you see the guy, uh, oh God, like the Underburbs. The like Underburbs are freaking awesome. I mean, to get to spend fifteen or twenty minutes talking to the guys who did the creation, who sit there and you know this is their life, man. This is what they do. This is it's yeah. the coolest part of interpersonality that we could have with an artist right now. And I, well, I think that goes, I mean, most people I think can, can relate to that as far as like their favorite local band. You, dude, you've got to check this out. Exactly. Nobody else knows this but me, and I want to share it with you. All right, you just yep. went a little hipster there, Brian. It was true. And, uh, <laughs> he yeah, doesn't know what I, I know, but he is one. I, he I, liked it before I've everyone got... else. Did you know that? <laughs> I've got this. He this liked it before it was cool to like it. Before all those damn kids started liking it. Sorry. Right. On my lawn. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, Megan, how far along in the process are we with the Comic Archive project? Where are we at now? What can we look forward to? And if people are interested in helping, where can they go? Okay. Well, first thing, if you are interested in helping. We're on Twitter at, at Comic Archives. Um, we are in the process of getting our website up, and as soon as it's up, I think Sci-Fi Saturday Night will probably be kind enough to give us a shout-out on their Facebook page, maybe. Oh, I think we Hey, we that. may have yeah. to follow you on Twitter. Yes, but definitely follow us on Twitter. Um, we are, we've got our incorporation paperwork with the state of New Hampshire processing as a nonprofit. And then once that's done, we can get our IRS exemption, and then we can start taking donations. Um, we have uh, we've had a lot of really amazing um, support come out from people. Just this, you know, it's one of those things where 
like there's a part of me that's afraid to tell people about this project because it is my baby and I'm afraid that they're going to say no that's stupid but then anytime I tell someone about the project they say oh my god this is great how can I help the head librarian at Plymouth State University who um, who is one of the editors of the International Journal of Comic Art you know I had a sit down conversation with him for about an hour and a half and he was really great and he's like I like this project this is what I like this is what I think you should do these are the people you need to talk to you know so we've got support um, the the archivist down at Keene State College is one of my biggest supporters. He was one of my first supporters, and that's someone who is an archivist. You know, I mean, when I first met him, he said, oh, cool, you're into comic books. I used to collect comic books myself. And so I was kind of afraid to tell him about my project for, it took me a couple of months to, like, muster up the courage. And then I told him, and he said, that's an amazing idea. I love it. What can I do? And that's what people keep saying, which is, like, it's, it's just overwhelming how awesome people have been. You know, what can I do to help? And people really want to get this project off the ground, and we really want to have it there. We want people to be able to access this stuff, you know, long after I'm, I'm gone, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why you're here, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> as, as things continue on and there are new inroads to be made, we expect to hear you have you back on the show uh, as your website goes up as donations continue uh, this is a viable valuable idea and uh, good luck thank We're you with very you. much and uh, we'll be at Boston Comic Con as well so sweet you will be at the Boston Comic Con excellent so wait will we. I've just I've finally dug six feet down hold on uh -oh. I'm Ruth Gordon. There <laughs> 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 she is. And just as we're about to Ruth go, Gordon here. <laughs> <laughs> welcome the <to> dead redhead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, good of you to join us just as we're about to go, Kriana. I'm sorry, my fans couldn't wait. <laughs> it's time to crank the music up, honey. It's already on. What are you talking about? Oh, there it is. Okay, folks, next week, giant robot time. Fan favorite Frankie B. Washington returns with the latest on his new series, Robot God Akamatsu. Science, uh, Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of the Boston Comic-Con and of Comic Art House, your one and only source for original comic artwork. Visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music is provided by The Traffic Lights. Pick up their CD, Hold a Folk, at RobWattsOnline.com. And don't forget to look for members of the Sci-Fi Saturday Night cast at the Queen City Comic Con, Not a Con, and a Con coming to you near sometime soon. Don't? <laughs> I want to thank Megan Gregory and wish you a lot of good luck with the Comic Archive project. We expect to hear a lot more from you in the coming months and uh, years as this project moves along. From the Revere Time Vortex, I don't know how the hell we actually got an hour's worth in tonight with everything that was going on. The sweetheart <laughs> of the soundboard, Kriana, Zombrarian, thank you, ladies. You don't have to tell me. I know I'm awesome. Zombrarian, you might be muted. <laughs> <laughs> I was muted. Good night. <laughs>
from the Four Color Welcome Comics. Great thanks to Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Good night, everybody. If you don't know who Ruth Gordon is, go IMDb her. From the Outpost Gallifrey bus terminal. <laughs> Thank you, Wake My Java. It has been one of those really, really odd nights that are going to give me headaches for weeks to come. This is Dom saying, Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy is increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody. I know.